0: Today we are visiting a city with numerous nicknames. It's been called the Window to the West, a Russian city with boulevards, canals, and baroque buildings that makes it feel like Europe. It's also been called the City of White Knights as it's located only seven degrees in latitude below the Arctic Circle. In summertime, the sun goes down at midnight and rises around 2 a.m. How about the Venice of the North? With 342 bridges, it doesn't quite match the 400 bridges in Venice, but it's pretty close. This is the largest city in Russia, the fourth largest in Europe, and the world's most northerly city with over one million residents. As the seat of the czars and the center of their empire, this city has played a vital role in Russian history since its founding by Peter the Great in 1703. Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. Brian Unger here, taking you around Europe, giving you the backstories behind the greatest destinations on the continent. And today we have a beauty. We are going to St. Petersburg, Russia. As suggested by St. Petersburg's many nicknames, there are a lot of different ways one could tell the story of this fascinating city. I've now been to St. Petersburg four times, dating back to the 1980s and the days of the old Soviet Union when it was called Leningrad, and I've been back on more recent trips as an enrichment speaker on cruise ships. Now, as I thought back to my visits, I wrestled with how to incorporate all of the different angles into the St. Petersburg story and into one narrative. Well, there's one building in the city that stands out from all the others for several reasons. It is the Winter Palace. This was the official residence of the Russian emperors from 1732 to 1917 and today it's home to the magnificent Hermitage Museum. The Winter Palace is a monumental building that was constructed to reflect the might and the power of Imperial Russia. It has almost 1900 doors, almost 2,000 windows, and 1,500 rooms. From this palace, the Tsar of Russia ruled nearly 23 million square kilometers or almost one-sixth of the Earth's landmass. It occurred to me that nearly all of the St. Petersburg storylines are connected to the Winter Palace. So today, we're going to tell the story of St. Petersburg using the Winter Palace as the vehicle. So when you go to the city of White Knights, the palace will likely be your first stop And for good reason, it has a great story. So, let's get to know St. Petersburg and the Imperial Winter Palace. It's the end of the 17th century, and the Russian Empire is ruled by Peter the Great. He was a giant of a man in more ways than one. He had an iron will and a boundless energy. He had an amazing capacity for work and an equally unquenchable thirst for amusement. There are some pretty salty stories one can tell about this guy, but let's just say he liked to drink. He liked to drink a lot and have a good time. And when I say he was a giant of a man, I mean that literally. He stood at six feet, eight inches tall. Now that is really tall today, but could you imagine... In 17th century Europe, let's just say he stood out in a crowd. Now, Peter felt that Russia was far behind the rest of Europe, and he was determined to modernize the country. So in 1697, he traveled incognito to Western Europe on an 18-month journey with a large Russian delegation. This was the so-called Grand Embassy. His mission was to learn as much as he could about how Western European countries operated so he could adopt their best practices for Russia. He used a fake name, he called himself Peter Mikhailov, and that allowed him to escape social and diplomatic events, but since he was way taller than everyone else, he didn't really fool anyone of importance. They knew who he was. He took a particular interest in sea power. When he was in the Dutch Republic, he worked as a shipbuilder, just like one of the boys, he would work at the docks building ships. When he returned to Russia in 1698, He embarked on a program of westernization and expansion that would transform the Tsardom of Russia into the Russian Empire and into a major European power. He did a lot of things when he returned. He established the first Russian newspaper, the first Russian hospital, the first Russian museum. He also set up Russian schools for navigation, geography, and politics. But his true love, in fact, his obsession was the sea. One thing he learned on his trip to the West was that the key to becoming a great European power depended on becoming a great sea power. Now, there was a problem, though. Russia didn't even have a navy, so he built one from scratch. But he had another problem. What are you going to do with the navy if you don't have a proper seaport? So the linchpin of Peter's modernization program was to build a seaport city that would be Russia's window to the West, to trade goods and ideas with the rest of Europe. It would be a glorious new capital for Russia that would rival London, it would rival Paris, it would rival Rome. Now, where would this new dream city be located? Ideally, it would be best if it was on the Baltic Sea coast facing west, but there was a problem. Most of that coast was controlled by Sweden. So Peter did the only logical thing, He launched a war against Sweden. This was the Great Northern War. And in 1703, he was able to capture this fortress. Peter was ecstatic, and he immediately replaced the Swedish fort with the Peter and Paul Fortress, which you can visit today. He was off to the races. Now, Peter couldn't wait to begin construction of his new city, which he would name after St. Peter. Of course, it didn't hurt that Peter himself shared the name of the saint. As early as 1704, before there was anything really there, he was already calling St. Petersburg the new capital of Russia, which had been Moscow. However, building the city was a nightmare with incredibly difficult weather and geographical conditions. The mortality rate was staggering, and this required a constant resupply of workers. To deal with this, Peter ordered a yearly conscription of 40,000 serfs, these poor serfs had to report for duty from all over Russia. They had to provide their own tools for, and they'd bring their own food, and the journey would be hundreds of kilometers on foot, in gangs, often escorted by military guards and shackled to prevent desertion. Thousands died from disease and exposure under these harsh conditions even before they arrived at this new building project. But Peter was determined, and by 1712, Officially, he moved the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg. It was then that the first winter palace was built. It started off as quite a modest building. There were two main floors and it had a slate roof. It was along the banks of the Neva River, had a good location in the center of town, but not much of a palace to start. But Peter, he had been to the Palace of Versailles in France, so he knew what a real palace looked like and his winter palace was certainly no Versailles. He knew it was important to have a palace in the center of his new city, but he thought he would build another palace on the outskirts of town where he could really put out all the stops and create something that might rival Versailles. So in 1714, he began work on his Russian Versailles. It would be named Peterhof, after him, of course. Now, if you are there doing the usual circuit of main sites in St. Petersburg, you will undoubtedly be visiting Peterhof. And if you've been to Versailles, you're gonna notice a lot of similarities. Peterhof actually outdoes Versailles in fountains. It's got 64 compared to Versailles that has 50. And perhaps the greatest technolo- technological achievement of Peterhof is that all of the fountains operate without the use of pumps. It's all gravity. Water is supplied from natural springs and it collects in reservoirs in the upper gardens, so it's the elevation difference that creates the pressure that drives most of the fountains. Peterhof also outpoints Versailles with its setting. It's right on the shores of the Gulf of Finland, so it's quite spectacular. It's easy to see why both the palace and the gardens have been designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Well, Peterhof was coming along quite nicely. And so Peter was starting to grow tired of his modest winter palace in St. Petersburg, so he built a second version in 1721. It still was no Versailles, but it was starting to look a little bit more palatial. Now, Peter had other motives for building these palaces other than just giving him luxurious accommodations. He wanted to send a message to the country that his new city was for real, and the Russian aristocracy was expected to embrace it. So Peter ordered his nobles to construct stone-built residences and spend half of the year in St. Petersburg. But in those early years, this was a very unpopular command because St. Petersburg was founded on a swamp. There was little sunlight, and it was said that only cabbages and turnips would grow there. It was even against the law to chop down trees for fuel. So hot water was permitted just once a week. It was pretty hard to enjoy life in this new capital. But using pressed slave labor, the pace of the building was relentless and work on the city progressed quickly. It's estimated that 200,000 people died in 20 years while building the city. But what a city it would be. It was centered on an island and shaped by a rectangular grid of canals, hence the name, the Venice of the North. Architecturally, The city was designed as a deliberate rejection of the traditional Russian Byzantine style. Instead, it was meant to mimic the classically inspired architecture that's common in the great European cities. This is a reason why St. Petersburg is an uncommonly beautiful city architecturally. If you think of it, it's really quite a young city by European standards, and it was meticulously planned out there's an architectural uniformity that you don't see in other cities. This style even has a name. It's called Petrine Baroque or Peter's Baroque. In 1725, Peter the Great died in the winter palace of his dream city. But the dream was not yet a reality as it was still a long way from being the center of Western culture and civilization that he had envisioned. But it was coming. A diplomat of the time described the city in those early days as, quote, a heap of villages linked together like some plantation in the West Indies, unquote. Yet just a few years later, that same diplomat called it, quote, a wonder of the world considering its magnificent palaces, unquote. The city of St. Petersburg was beginning to take its place as the historical and cultural symbol of the birth of the Russian Empire and Russia's entry into modern history as a great European power. So I've been raving about how quickly and impressively St. Petersburg grew, but it should be said that as soon as Peter the Great died, Many of the aristocrats who had been compelled by the Tsar to inhabit St. Petersburg, well, they got out of town and went back to Moscow as soon as they could. But as the work continued, the city became more and more habitable. And over the years, the Winter Palace was enlarged. It was extended until it eventually really had little connection to Peter's original palace. In the mid-18th century, the new empress was Elizabeth, and she made a priority of regarding the palace as a symbol of national prestige. And she went all out to make it a shiny example of Russian power and authority. She carried out upgrades and renovations and expansions. And this continued throughout the year, even through the most severe months of the Russian winter. Now, during this time, Russia was also embroiled in the Seven Years' War, which was causing deprivation to both the Russian people and to the army, but nothing would slow down Elizabeth's project of improving the winter palace. Taxes were raised so the work could continue, while laborers who worked on the winter palace earned a wage of one ruble per month. Now, I'm not sure what that would work out to today when adjusted for inflation, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't sound like much. By 1759, shortly before Elizabeth died, a winter palace truly worthy of the name was nearing completion. It had come a long way since the modest two-floor slate roof building constructed by Peter the Great. The Winter Palace was higher than any structure in St. Petersburg by now, and the government decreed that no structure in the city could be higher. But even greater things were in store for the Winter Palace. Empress Elizabeth was succeeded by the grandson of Peter the Great, who was also Elizabeth's nephew. This was Tsar Peter III. Elizabeth also picked a bride for Peter. It was a 15-year-old German princess with a very regal-sounding name of Sophie Auguste Friedrich of anhalt zerbst Unlike his grandfather, Peter I, Peter III turned out to be a feckless, unpopular czar who strangely hated all things Russian and loved all things German. He died at the age of 34 under mysterious circumstances, but the consensus seems to be that he was murdered, most likely on the orders of his wife, Sophie Auguste Frederic of anhalt Zerbst. Now, even though she was not even a Romanov, she managed to crown herself Empress. And unlike her deceased husband, she essentially renounced everything German, even though she herself was German, and she embraced everything Russian. This made her quite popular. She also adopted a Russian name of Catherine Alexeyevna Romanova. She is known to history as Catherine the Great. And what a colorful, controversial empress she was. She fancied herself an enlightened monarch, and she corresponded regularly with the French enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and Diderot. She was a huge advocate for education. She founded the fabled Smolny Institute for Girls, and she launched a national school system. But her bureaucracy was riddled with corruption. Nothing could get done unless you paid a bribe to officials. She increased serfdom by further enslaving over a million peasants during her reign. She personally owned a half a million serfs, so that doesn't sound too enlightened to me but she's probably best remembered for her lovers. Now, I guess you could call her a feminist because she believed that if a king or a czar could have numerous mistresses, why couldn't an empress have numerous lovers? And I guess that's a reasonable point. And believe me, she embraced this belief with gusto. She had at least 22 different lovers, most of whom were given exceptional parting gifts in the form of estates, government positions or awards. One of her lovers was made the king of Poland. Some called her the Messalina of the Neva, while others just called her a nymphomaniac. Somehow these disparaging descriptions never applied to kings and czars with their many mistresses. Rumors swirled around Catherine, the most salacious of which was that she died while having sex with a horse. Now, if you don't believe me, Go to Google on your computer. Try typing in Catherine the Great in the search bar, and Google will auto-complete your search and add the word horse. Now, this story is almost certainly an urban legend, but based on Catherine's reputation, it got a lot of traction. Okay, I'm spending a bit of time talking about Catherine. Isn't this supposed to be about St. Petersburg and the Winter Palace? Well, the reason is, Catherine the Great's fingerprints are all over the Winter Palace because she is the one who started the Hermitage Museum, which is housed in the Winter Palace. Today, it is the second largest museum in the world behind only the Louvre. It also has the largest collection of paintings in the world. Roughly three million items are on display, but this is only one third of the overall collection. The other two-thirds is squirreled away in the basements of the Hermitage. So how did this whole collection start? Well, it was really quite haphazard and eclectic. Catherine's ambassadors in Rome, Paris, Amsterdam, and London were instructed to look out for and purchase thousands of priceless works of art on her behalf. In this way, large assemblies of art from masters such as Rembrandt, Rubens, Titian, Raphael, and others were acquired. Catherine eventually accumulated at least 4,000 paintings which rivaled the older and more prestigious museums in Western Europe. Later czars continued to add to the collection through purchase, through trade, through expropriation or simply outright theft. Here's an example. Napoleon looted numerous priceless works of art during the, the, the Napoleonic Wars and many of which were given to his wife, Josephine. After the wars, Czar Alexander I purchased most of these masterpieces from Josephine's heirs. After the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks continued adding to the collection in true communist fashion by requisitioning art from private collections in the 1920s. They then turned around and sold over 2,000 pieces in the 1930s, including works by Raphael, Titian, Botticelli, Rembrandt, Van Eyck, and others. This amazing museum, which has been for the exclusive enjoyment of the czars and the aristocracy was open to the public in 1852. So peasants like us can also see this magnificent collection. As we get into the 19th century, the Winter Palace is in its prime. It was a setting for profuse, frequent, and lavish entertaining. The dining table could seat 1,000 guests, while the staterooms could contain up to 10,000 people. The imperial family were not the only residents of the palace. Below the metal framework in the attics lived an army of servants. So vast were the servants' quarters that a former servant and his family, unbeknownst to the palace authorities, moved into the roof of the palace. You know how they got busted? They were only discovered by the smell of the manure from the cow that they had also smuggled into the building because they wanted to have fresh milk. But death would also cast a shadow on the palace. Let's go into the late 19th century and meet Alexander II, Tsar of Russia. He is known for a couple of things. He is regarded as Russia's Abraham Lincoln because he emancipated the serfs in 1861. Although, if you think about it, he did this one year before Lincoln did, so perhaps Lincoln should be referred to as America's Alexander. Be that as it may, Alexander, he is a guy who the Americans will like because he's the czar who sold Alaska to the U.S. in 1867, so he's probably one of America's favorite czars. But let's get back to the Winter Palace. In spite of his reputation as a reformer, Some were unhappy with Tsarist rule, and Alexander was a constant target for assassination attempts. A dramatic attempt occurred inside the Winter Palace itself. There was a terrorist group known as the People's Will, and they wanted Alexander dead. Now, one of the plotters was the daughter of a former governor of St. Petersburg who was familiar with the palace. She learned of repairs that were being carried out in the basement. So she was able to enlist a trained carpenter to their cause, and he subsequently was enrolled as one of the workmen carrying out these repairs in the basement. Every day, he carried dynamite charges concealed in his tools, and he placed them beneath the private dining room of the Tsar and the royal family. In February of 1880, they were ready to go with plans to detonate the bomb as the Tsar and his family dined. Now, fortunately for the Romanovs, a guest arriving from Berlin was delayed. And for the first time in years, dinner was also delayed. Just as the family was leaving the drawing room for the dining room, the bomb exploded. So great was the explosion that it could be heard all over St. Petersburg. The dining room was completely demolished with 11 unfortunate staffers killed and another 30 were wounded. Now Alexander had dodged a bullet or in this case a bomb, but this cat did not have nine lives. One year later in 1881, Alexander was out on his weekly visit to the military academy where he went every Sunday to observe roll call. He traveled with his bodyguards in a bulletproof closed carriage that was a gift to him from Napoleon III of France. Now the people's will was still after him and a member of the people's will was watching the carriage go by, carrying a small white package that was wrapped in a handkerchief. And it kind of looked like a snowball, only it wasn't a snowball, it was a bomb. The bomb was thrown at the carriage and it exploded, killing one of the guards and wounding others, but it only damaged the bulletproof carriage. The emperor got out of the carriage to survey the damage. And spoiler alert, this was a mistake. That's when a second bomb was thrown at his feet. This time, Alexander was not so fortunate. His legs were torn away, his stomach was ripped open, and his face was mutilated. He was rushed by sleigh back to the Winter Palace, where his family gathered around and watched him die. But out of this tragic event emerged one of the most iconic buildings in all of St. Petersburg. Directly over the spot where Alexander was killed, the Church of the Savior on Blood was built. Now you've undoubtedly seen photos of this stunning Russian Orthodox cathedral before, as it's one of the symbols of the city. At the rear of the nave is the exposed cobblestone street where Alexander had his legs ripped off. It's always pretty powerful for me to stand in a place where a very significant historical assassination has taken place i try to become something of a time traveler and transport myself to become a witness to those moments i certainly had one of those moments when i was at the church of the savior on blood maybe you will too although this was a big deal I suspect you may not be especially familiar with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. Maybe it's the first time you've heard of it. However, there is another St. Petersburg assassination that you will be familiar with. So stay tuned as we turn our attention to the 20th century. In 1894, the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II married the German princess, Alex of Hesse. This was done in a lavish ceremony at the Winter Palace. They would go on to have four daughters and one son. His name was Alexei, and he would be the heir to the Russian throne. Now, Tsar Nicholas's rule was oppressive, and Russian peasants were living in grinding poverty. In January of 1905, a Russian Orthodox priest who was also a popular working class leader by the name of Father Capon, announced his intention to lead a peaceful protest of 100,000 unarmed striking workers to the Winter Palace. And there they would present a petition to the Tsar. Now, this was not supposed to be a revolution, but it was rather a call for fundamental reforms. And they also wanted the founding of a constituent parliament. What the protesters didn't know was that the czar split his time between the Winter Palace and another palace. I mean, after all, the Romanovs had several palaces to choose from. So at this time, Nicholas wasn't even at the Winter Palace when the protest was taking place. In fact, he wasn't even informed of this planned protest until the evening before. Now Nicholas, as you can imagine, had no inclination to even send a representative to accept the petition. Instead, extra troops were deployed to greet the protesters. As the strikers neared the palace, they were bearing religious icons and they were singing the imperial anthem. The czar's troops opened fire. While the number of casualties is disputed, uh, modern estimates put the number of men, women, and children killed or injured at about 1,000. That's a pretty serious massacre. And this was done right in front of the Winter Palace. This massacre became known as Bloody Sunday, and this was a serious blunder on the part of the Tsarist regime. Indignant workers throughout Russia went on strike in reaction to Bloody Sunday. This was met with more suppression from Nicholas II's troops, and that only further increased tensions. And what was the Tsar doing when all this was going on? He seemed quite oblivious to these troubles as he and his court continued to live in luxury at the Winter Palace. The optics were terrible and the Tsar would not recover. He did, however, offer one concession. The Tsar allowed for the formation of a representative assembly called a Duma. This body would have limited lawmaking abilities and it was essentially set up as a kind of like an advisory body for the Tsar. They met in the Winter Palace for the first time in 1906. The Duma loathed the Tsar, and the Tsar loathed the Duma. Representative government in Russia was not off to a good start. Well, let's get into World War I, and at this time, the Winter Palace was actually converted into a fully equipped hospital with wards, dressing stations, operating theaters, the staff were even housed in apartments once reserved for members of the extended Romanov family. But the war was going badly for Russia, which led Nicholas II to do something exceedingly stupid. This rather inept czar took over command of the armed forces. He didn't know anything about running the armed forces. Here he is commanding the forces. He left St. Petersburg to direct the war effort from the front lines. This meant that the Empress Alexandra was left behind in the Winter Palace to effectively rule Russia. By now, the Siberian mystic faith healer, holy man, Grigory Rasputin had wormed his way into the Tsarina's inner circle due to his alleged ability to provide treatment for the Crown Prince Alexei who suffered from this bleeding disease called hemophilia. The million-dollar question is, and you've probably wondered this yourself, was Grigory Rasputin the lover of the Russian queen? Well, we do know that Rasputin had an insatiable appetite for sex, and in spite of his rather bizarre and, let's say, eccentric appearance, he had no problem seducing legions of women. Numerous aristocratic women were amongst Rasputin lovers, and in fact, he was introduced to Zorina Alexandra by one of her ladies-in-waiting. In 1912, one of the empress's letters was leaked to the press. She wrote, quote, I kiss your hands and lay my head upon your blessed shoulders. All I want to do is sleep, sleep forever on your shoulder, in your embrace, unquote. Not your typical correspondence between a woman and her spiritual advisor. Needless to say, this is somewhat incriminating, although there is some doubt as to the authenticity of this letter. But what was not in doubt was the unpopularity of Rasputin amongst the Russian people. Now, this was a particular concern to the conservative nobleman who saw how damaging Rasputin was to the Tsarist regime they realized that if the Tsar were toppled, their position of privilege would be washed away as well. So in late 1916, a trio of nobles led by Prince Felix Yusopov concocted a plan to kill the mad monk in order to protect the Romanovs. Rasputin was lured to the Yusopov's astonishingly opulent Moika Palace in St. Petersburg. Now, let me interject here that when you go to St. Petersburg, this palace should be on your list of things to see. The Yusupov family was one of the wealthiest in Russia. Some say the wealthiest family in Russia, and it is very evident in this incredible palace. Now, don't be fooled. It really doesn't look like much from the outside, but the interior will blow you away. More on that later. Anyhow, Rasputin was lured into the palace cellar with the promise of Madeira wine which he loved. There in the cellar Rasputin was poisoned and shot at point blank range and his body was thrown into the Neva River. Now as part of the tour of the Moika Palace should you go there you will it all it will also include a visit to the cellar and it's been made up to look just like it did on that fateful night complete with wax figures. I think I must have some kind of macabre obsession with historical assassinations because visiting this cellar was absolutely fascinating for me. Is it too weird for me to think of doing a podcast on European destinations for assassinations and or executions? I mean, there's no shortage of material. And if there's anything you'd like me to dive into, maybe you can pop onto my Instagram page, Snapshots Travelog, message me and let me know. and Maybe I'll get working on that. But let's get back to the Tsar and the Winter Palace. Nicholas was forced to accept the hopelessness of both the war and the situation at home, and in March of 1917, he abdicated the imperial throne, ending the 300-year Romanov dynasty in Russia. Remember the Duma that was created after the unrest in 1905? They essentially declared themselves to be the provisional government of Russia until proper elections could be held. They then took up residence in the Winter Palace. But this didn't last long because in October of that same year, 1917, only seven months later, the Bolsheviks led by Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky and inspired by Karl Marx stormed the palace. This would be a defining moment in the birth of the Soviet state, but not before the Bolsheviks carried out a good old fashioned pillaging of the Winter Palace. Priceless pictures were ripped from their frames by bayonets. Rare plates in China were smashed. The library was ransacked. Anything that could be picked up was carried off. And wait till we hear about the wine cellar. It was arguably the largest and best stocked cellar in history, not of the time, of all history. It had the world's finest vintages Including the Tsar's favorite, a Chateau Yquem, it's called, from 1847. I had to look this up. In 2011, in 2011 a bottle of this wine, the Chateau de Yquem, I'm probably pronouncing that poorly, it's spelled Chateau D Y Q U E M, in case you want to look it up. It sold at auction for a white wine record price of $117,000. US in 2011. I continue to dig a little bit deeper. I found another one that's on sale right now online for just over $166,000, but that's in Canadian dollars, not American dollars. Such a deal. But I'm not sure how discriminating this mob was when it came to wine and alcohol when they ransacked the cellar. In order to control the crowds, the Bolsheviks explored radical options for the problem, and one of them involved piping the wine straight out into the Neva River. This led crowds to cluster around the palace drains. Another proposal to control the chaos was to blow up the cellars, but they thought that was a bit risky, so eventually the problem was solved by declaring martial law. It's been said that after this event, St. Petersburg had perhaps the biggest hangover in history. When the dust had settled, the provisional government was overthrown and communism was imposed on the country with the establishment of the USSR. And speaking of assassinations and executions, Tsar Nicholas II, the empress, and their children were arrested and all held in captivity until they were murdered in Yekaterinburg in 1918. And the Winter Palace... Well, the Bolsheviks declared the former home of the Romanovs would be part of the Hermitage Public Museums. The Winter Palace has come a long way from a small slate roof structure first built by Peter the Great in 1711 to a sprawling 650,000 square foot palace among the largest in the world, also home to the second largest museum in the world. In 2019, The complex attracted just less than 5 million visitors. I looked it up. That would be the equivalent of the entire population of Ireland or of New Zealand. It is the most iconic and important site in St. Petersburg, and you could argue, in the entire country. It will undoubtedly be a focal point for you when you visit the imperial capital of Russia. Now for the fun part, planning your trip to St. Petersburg. I have a good news, bad news proposition for you. The bad news is it's really very difficult to explore St. Petersburg independently. Visas are a hassle and the city isn't really set up for independent travel. It helps if you speak some Russian and if you're able to read the Russian Cyrillic alphabet as not too many people there speak English. St. Petersburg really does feel more foreign than, say, Italy or even the Czech Republic. And lineups for the major sites are astronomical. These are lineups that I have never seen before and has been worse and worse every year I have gone to St. Petersburg. I was last there in 2019, and without fail, Lineups were four people wide and over 100 meters long. That's a whole football field long. You'd have to wait in line to see these attractions for hours and hours. Now, one of the I asked about this. One of the reasons for this is that the Russian government has recently relaxed visa requirements for China. And Chinese tourists have discovered St. Petersburg in a big way. Okay, so that's the bad news. Now, here's the good news. If you are determined to visit this amazing city, and it is an amazing city, it is a great excuse for you to finally go on a cruise. Visa requirements are waived for cruise ship passengers who visit the city on ship excursions. You'll be able to cut all of the lines, that you see outside the palaces and the museums you'll be visiting. And trust me, you're going to look out the window when you're inside some of these palaces, you're gonna see those lines and you'll be very happy that you were on an organized excursion. And the guides in St. Petersburg are excellent. They're all required to undergo extensive government-sponsored training programs in order to get their certification. All of the guides on all of our trips to St. Petersburg were amazing. And to get the most out of your visit to St. Petersburg, I would highly recommend that you skip the ship excursions and sign on for a private tour. Also, you do not need a visa if you sign on for a private tour. So that's an important point to note. There are several companies that do this. We use St. Petersburg Tours, which goes by S. -S 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 P B tours. You can find them on the internet very easily. We found them to be reasonably priced and very efficient. And as I say, there are other companies you could use, but this is the one we use, and it worked. Uh, We've used them twice, and they've been great both times. In two days, we've done a two-day tour and a three-day tour. On one of these trips, on one of these tours, you will cover off all of the top sites in the city. And it'll start with the Winter Palace and the Hermitage. So we've talked lots about that. So you know what's going on with the Winter Palace and the Hermitage. Other things you will see when you are on one of these tours or on your ship excursions, you'll probably see the Peter and Paul Fortress. And that's the first structure built in the city and it's the burial place for most of the Russian czars, including Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. So you can pay your respects there. You'll also go to Peterhof, which is the Russian Versailles I was talking about, the lavish palace with all of those fountains built by Peter the Great on the shores of the Gulf of Finland. I've got pictures of that on my Instagram account, which you might want to have a look at. Amazing place. You'll also go to, this is almost a guarantee, that you'll also go to the spectacular Church of the Savior on Blood, That was the cathedral that was built over the spot where Alexander II was assassinated. So you too can have a moment gazing at the exposed cobblestone street, right where the bomb exploded, killing Alexander II. I haven't talked about the spectacular St. Isaac's Cathedral, but that will be another stop on your excursion list, I'm sure. This is a massive neoclassical design. It was completed in 1858. It's got a gilded 101-meter-high dome and 112 enormous red granite columns, and each of these was hewn and erected as a single block. So that will be something that will be unforgettable. Something else that will be unforgettable will probably be the Yusopov Palace. If you have a chance to go there, it's also called the Moika Palace. That is where Rasputin was murdered. Beautiful interior, and to spend some time in that cellar where Rasputin was uh, killed, uh, to me, was very memorable. And hopefully you'll also get to visit the jaw-dropping Catherine Palace, this was built by Catherine the Great. I didn't talk about it in the podcast, but I've talked about Catherine the Great a fair bit, and that will be included on many of the itineraries on these tours that you'll go through when you're in St. Petersburg. This was used by the czars as a summer palace built by Catherine the Great. It's home to the Amber Room, which is covered with innumerable amber stones backed with gold leaf and mirrors. This Amber Room has been called the eighth wonder of the world. You have to see it to believe it. Amazing. Some other itineraries you may go on will include the Fabergé Museum. And there you can marvel at some of the intricacies of these amazing, bejeweled, famous Russian eggs. And depending on when you visit, you will likely have the added bonus of experiencing the White Knights. Watching the sunset after midnight is pretty surreal to see. In fact, the entire city is pretty surreal. It's beautiful. As I said earlier, check out my Instagram account at Snapshots Travelog to see some pictures of these St. Petersburg highlights, and feel free to leave any feedback, any comments, or if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer those. Window to the West, Venice of the North, or City of White Nights lots of nicknames. When you go to visit, you decide which one suits best for this amazing city. And until next time, keep calm and travel on.